I would now like to turn to a political intelligence and security plan that was designed for the campaign but ultimately rejected. While Caulfield was a member of my staff, the use of Mr. Ulasewicz slowly diminished and that I had no need for such investigative work and only requested Caulfield to obtain investigative information when someone else in the staff requested it. While I did try to find assignments for Caulfield that related to the work of the counsel's office, it was difficult in that he was not a lawyer. Mr. Caulfield was aware of the situation, and in the spring of 1971, he came to me and told me he was thinking of leaving the White House staff to establish an investigative security consulting corporation. He felt there was a need in a market for such an activity, and what he described as a Republican intertel, the intertel firm being a long-established firm that's been in existence for a number of years working in the field. He told me that he felt that he should get started as soon as possible so that he could have a going concern by campaign time and that his firm could provide investigative security assistance to the campaign. We casually discussed this on several occasions. The basic and initial concept he had developed was an operation that could be funded by contracts with corporations. Mr. Caulfield's firm would provide services for these corporations, but would also provide free services to the 1972 re-election campaign. I recall telling Caulfield that I could not help him in the intelligence field because I did not have any expertise in the area, but I advised him that he should work with a lawyer in developing the concept he had just outlined to me because it was fraught with legal problems. For example, I told him the, corp the corporations are prohibited under federal law from making direct or indirect campaign contributions. Shortly after these conversations, Caulfield informed me that he had formed a group to develop a plan to submit to Mr. Ehrlich and Mr. Haldeman and Mr. Mitchell. The planning group intended to become the principal officers of the corporation once it commenced its activity. Caulfield and the group spent several months developing their plans, and in early August or September of 1971, Caulfield brought me a memorandum entitled Operation Sandwich and told me that he was seeking a meeting with Mr. Ehrlichman to discuss the matter and requested that I assist him in getting a meeting with Mr. Mitchell. I do not know if Mr. Caulfield met with Mr. Ehrlichman. If he did, I was not present and have no knowledge of the meeting. I read the memorandum and found it to be a privately operated extension of the types of things that Caulfield had been performing for Mr. Ehrlichman. I returned the memorandum to Caulfield and told him I would raise it with Mitchell. To the best of my recollection, Operation Sandwich envisioned the creation of a corporation called Security Consulting Group Incorporated, which was to have offices in Washington, Chicago, and New York. It was to have an overt and a covert capacity. The covert capacity would have operated out of New York, presumably under the aegis of Mr. Ulasewicz. It was to be separate and apart from the other operations in Washington and Chicago. The principal activity of the security consulting group was to provide private security for all phases of the campaign. But the New York covert operation would have the capacity to provide bag men to carry money and engage in electronic surveillance if called upon to do so. Although I returned the copy of the Operation Sandwich memorandum given to me by Mr. Caulfield, I did find in my records a copy of a proposed budget, which reflects some of the items I've just mentioned. 
I also found a number of memorandum relating to the campaign secu security aspects of the plan. I have submitted these documents to the committee, exhibit number nine. I did discuss Operation Sandwedge with Mr. Mitchell. I recall that he was not interested at all. He told me that he thought that Jack Caulfield was a fine person, but he felt that the principal problems would relate to security and the problems that demonstrators might cause to the campaign. Mr. Mitchell said he wanted a lawyer to handle any such operation and asked me to think about candidates. I told him that Jack Caulfield had requested an opportunity to discuss his plan with him. I told him that Jack, I told him that I told Jack I would convey the message. Mitchell did not wish to discuss the proposal, so I kept putting Caulfield off, and when he raised it with me, because I liked Jack, I did not want to hurt his feelings, I continued to keep putting him off. I also recall that Ehrlichman raised Operation Sandwich with me. I do not know if this was a result of his meeting with Caulfield or Caulfield sending him a copy of the memorandum. Ehrlichman told me that he would like to keep Tony Ulasewicz around during the campaign, but he did not think much of Mr. Caulfield's proposed grand plan. Ehrlichman told me that Mitchell knew about Tony Ulasewicz and that Mitchell and Jack Caulfield should talk about Tony's future. Meanwhile, Caulfield kept requesting an answer on his plans. He had his heart set on the proposal. He had spent long hours preparing it, and I knew he was going to be very disappointed to learn that it had been shot down. Every few weeks, Mr. Caulfield would send me an item or two to prompt my attention and to prompt me to take action. I have submitted to the committee, in exhibit number nine, the types of items he would send. I would just file them and do nothing, as I decided that the best course of action to save Jack's feelings was to let the matter die a natural death through no action. Indeed, that happened. By November 1971, Mr. Caulfield realized that his plan was dead and he abandoned the idea. Realizing this, he told me he would like to work for Mr. Mitchell during the campaign as an aide-de-camp and requested that I assist him in getting an appointment with Mr. Mitchell. I arranged for him to meet Mr. Mitchell on November 24, 1971. Pursuant to Mr. Caulfield's request, I was not present during the entire meeting, but Jack later said that Mr. Mitchell had requested that he do some investigative work on the McCloskey campaign. Apparently, Caulfield convinced Mr. Mitchell that some greatly reduced version of Operation Sandwich might be of value, or he was seeking to show Mitchell what he could do. At any rate, Caulfield continued to call his intelligence gathering operation Operation Sandwich. I have submitted to the committee, exhibit number 10, copies of the investigative report Mr. Caulfield prepared for Mr. Mitchell on the McCloskey, New Hampshire campaign. And I hasten to add that to the best of my knowledge, Caulfield employed no illegal procedures in gathering this information. Pursuant to the request of Ehrlichman that Mitchell determine whether continued funding should be provided for Mr. Ulasewicz, Mitchell asked me what Ulasewicz had been doing. I told him I did not know, but I would have Caulfield prepare a summary of the activities. On January 12, 1972, I informed Mitchell that Caulfield had prepared such a list and suggested he meet with him. I refer the committee to exhibit number 11. I would also note at this point that there is no list accompanying that exhibit because while I initially thought I did have a list, 
I have searched my records that are available, and I have no such list other than the possibility there might be a list in my files that remain at the White House. I do not recall how this matter was resolved, but I believe some of the some arrangement was made to compensate Mr. Ulasewicz, but to my knowledge, he was not used in any manner other than that to which I shall refer later in my statement. Mr. Caulfield and Mr. Kambach would know about the arrangements that had been made. I shall now turn to my knowledge of how an intelligence unit was established at the re-election committee. To the best of my recollection, it was the spring of 1971 that Mr. Haldeman discussed with me what my office should do during the forthcoming campaign year. He told me that we should take maximum advantage of the president's incumbency and the focus of everyone in the White House should be on re-electing the president. It was decided that the principal area of concern for my office should be keeping the White House in compliance with the election laws and improving our intelligence regarding demonstrations. I was also told that I should provide legal assistance in establishing the re-election committee and ensuring that that they had their own capacity to deal with the potential threats of demonstrations during the campaign, and particularly the convention. I advised Haldeman that Jack Caulfield was developing a security plan and that he wanted to discuss his plan with Mr. Mitchell and Mr. Ehrlichman. I also told him I would seek to get the Interagency Evaluation Committee working on the potential for demonstrations during the campaign and subsequently called Mr. Bernie Wells, the head of the IEC, to my office and told him of the concern of the White House for good intelligence during the coming campaign. During the months that followed, I devoted most of my time to regular office functions, keeping abreast of the new campaign legislation and familiarizing myself with existing election laws, the Hatch Act, and related laws. It was not until after the proposed Operation Sandwich had been shelved and Magruder had left the White House to form the re-election committee that I began receiving calls from Strawn and Magruder that I was expected to suggest a lawyer to head up the demonstration intelligence operation at the re-election committee and to serve also as general counsel. On several occasions, Magruder told me that he would like to have Mr. Fred Fielding, my principal assistant, for this job. Fielding and I discussed it, but rejected it for several reasons. First, Fielding was aware of the fact that I was considering leaving the White House at that time. I was actually interviewing for jobs outside the government. and. He knew that I would recommend that he succeed me as counsel. Secondly, if I stayed, I would need his assistance during the coming months. I might add parenthetically as I look back, if I had accepted the job I was interviewing for at that time, I would not be sitting here today. After I informed Magruder that Mr. Fielding was not available, he requested that I suggest someone else because he was desperately in need of an in-house lawyer. Accordingly, I next went to Mr. Krogh and asked him if David Young might be available and interested. Krogh told me that Young was very much involved in the declassification project and could not be spared. The reason Young had occurred to me is that I had spent several days traveling with him in mid-October, interviewing prospective candidates for nomination to the Supreme Court. I might add that during those days of traveling around the country together, he never told me what the plumber's unit was doing or had done. But I felt that Mr. Young was a bright and extremely capable lawyer who would make an excellent general counsel and could handle the security and demonstration problems of the campaign. During my conversation with Mr. Krogh about Young, he suggested 
Mr. Gordon Liddy might be available, and that he had just about completed his work. Krogh spoke very highly of Liddy's legal ability and said that his FBI Treasury Department background in law enforcement would qualify him to handle a demonstration intelligence and security operation for the re-election committee. I did not know Mr. Liddy, but I respected Krogh's judgment, both as to the judgment of other lawyers and his knowledge of law enforcement. Bud had dealt with a demonstration problem for the White House before I joined the staff. I asked Mr. Krogh to find out if Mr. Liddy was interested. Several days later, Krogh informed me that Liddy was interested and asked me to come to his office, Krogh's office, and meet Liddy and describe the job. I did this. I told Liddy that the primary responsibility for the job was to serve as the lawyer for the re-election committee, but among the responsibilities, the general counsel would be keeping abreast of the potential of demonstrations that might affect the campaign. Liddy said he was interested. Krogh said that he would first have to clear this with Ehrlichman. I advised them that Mr. Mitchell and Mr. Magruder would be making the decisions on filling the post, and if Krogh got the okay from Ehrlichman, I would set up a meeting for Liddy to be interviewed by Mr. Mitchell. When Mr. Krogh gave me the okay from Ehrlichman, I called Mr. Mitchell, and I told him that Krogh, with Ehrlichman's approval, had suggested Gordon Liddy for the general counsel post, and I arranged for Liddy to meet Mitchell on November 24, 1971, after Mr. Caulfield met with Mr. Mitchell. I attended the meeting with Mitchell and Liddy, and I have submitted to the committee, Exhibit No. 12, a copy of an agenda Mr. Liddy prepared for the interview session. While I cannot recall every detail that was discussed, I do recall that it was a very general job-type interview. Mitchell realized that Liddy was not familiar with the election laws and asked if I would assist him in any way I could in getting himself familiar with those laws. I agreed. There was virtually no discussion of intelligence plans other than Liddy would draw up some sort of plans. Most of the conversation centered around title and compensation. Mr. Mitchell agreed that Liddy would be titled general counsel. I do not recall the rate of his compensation. I also recall that Liddy asked Mr. Mitchell when he would actually join the campaign, but Mitchell said he did not know. After this meeting, Mitchell called me to say that he wanted Magruder to interview Liddy because Magruder would be the man working most with him. I so advised Liddy, and on December 8, 1971, Magruder requested I bring Liddy over to his office for an interview. The interview in Magruder's office on December 8 was brief and non-substantive. Magruder told Liddy that he had a host of legal problems that needed attention immediately and pointed to a stack of papers that I assumed contained the problems that he was concerned about. There was a brief discussion of Liddy's responsibilities for demonstrations vis-à-vis the campaign, and Liddy said that after he got acclimated to the committee's problems and needs, he would draw up a plan. Magruder requested that Liddy come to work as soon as possible, which I believe was the following Monday. After Liddy was hired at the re-election committee, I informed my staff, principally Mr. Fred Field and Mr. David Wilson, that they should assist Liddy in becoming familiar with the election laws. I made my election law file available to Liddy and believed that he used them, and he had periodic contact with my staff and myself on election law matters. I can recall that I had several discussions with Liddy about his responsibilities with the committee, the re-election committee, in complying with the election laws. He told me that he had more work than there were hours in the day to complete it. I urged him to get volunteer lawyers to assist him and suggested several names of lawyers who might assist him. 
I can also recall that several weeks after Liddy left the White House, he was asked to turn in his White House pass. Liddy came to me and asked me to intervene in his behalf so that I might, so he might retain his pass and avoid the cumbersome procedures of clearance every time that he wished to enter the White House. I thought that my office would have a good deal of contact with Liddy, so I re requested that he permitted to keep his pass. This request was turned down, however, because they had decided to provide a fixed number of passes for people at the re-election committee, and Magruder would decide who got the passes. I so informed Liddy and never heard any more about the matter. The next time I recall meeting Mr. Liddy, I might be sorry before this, but I did have a brief occasion to, to see him in early January, I believe, about the 9th through the 14th or 15th, when he attended a general conference in San Diego on the entire scope of the convention uh, and the security problems that were going to confront the convention in San Diego. So after that, the next time I recall a meeting Liddy was at a meeting in Mitchell's office on January 27, 1972. Magruder called my office to set up the meeting, and only after I called Magruder to ask why he wanted me to attend the meeting did I learn that Liddy was going to present his intelligence plan. I met Magruder and Liddy at Mitchell's office. Liddy had a series of charts or diagrams which he placed on an easel, and the presentation by Liddy began. I did not fully understand everything Mr. Liddy was recommending at that time because some of the concepts were mind-boggling and the charts were encoded, but I shall attempt to reconstruct the high points that I remember as best I can. Liddy was, in effect, making a sales pitch. He said that the operation he had developed would be totally removed from the campaign and carried out by professionals. Plans called for muddling squads, for kidnapping teams, prostitutes to compromise the opposition, and electronic surveillance. He explained that the muddling squad could, for example, rough up demonstrators that were causing problems. The kidnapping teams could remove demonstration leaders and take them below the Mexican border and thereby diminish their ability the ability of the demonstrators to cause problems at the Pan-Euro Convention. The prostitutes could be used at the Democratic Convention to get information as well as compromised persons involved. I recall that he banned the girls with the high class and invest in the business. When discussing the electronic surveillance, he said that he had consulted with one of the best authorities in the country and his plan envisioned far more than bugging and tapping telephones. He said that under his plan, communications between ground facilities and aircraft could also be intercepted. I might also add this point, he also gave an elaborate description of intercepting various microwaves that traveled around the country through various uh, communication facilities, and I cannot uh, explain to the committee what that was, but to this day I don't understand it. Each major aspect of his proposal was on a chart, with one chart showing interrelations with the others. Each operation was given a code name. I have no recollection of these code names. With regard to surveillance, I do not recall if this was necessarily limited to electronic surveillance. He suggested several potential targets. I cannot recall for certain if it was during this meeting or the second meeting in early February that he suggested the potential targets. The targets that I recall he suggested were Mr. Larry O'Brien, the Democratic headquarters, and the Fontainebleau Hotel during the Democratic Convention. Mr. Lee concluded his presentation by saying that the plan would cost approximately $1 million. 
I do not recall the Buddha's reaction during the presentation of the plan, because he was seated beside me. But I do recall Nicole's reaction to the Mission Impossible plan. He was amazed. At one point, I gave him a look of bewilderment, and he went. Knowing Nicole, I did not think he would throw Woody out of the office or tell him he was out of his mind. Rather, he did what I expected. When the presentation was completed, he took a few long puffs on his pipe and told Liddy that the plan he had developed was not quite what he had in mind and the cost was out of the question. He, said, he suggested to Liddy that he go back and revise his plan, keeping in mind that he was most interested in the demonstration problem. I remained in Mitchell's office for a brief moment after the meeting ended, as the charts were being taken off the easel and assembled, and Mitchell indicated to me that Mr. Liddy's proposal was out of the question. I then joined Magruder and Liddy, and as we left the office, I told Liddy to destroy the charts. Mr. Liddy said that he would revise the plan and submit a new proposal. At that point, I thought the plan was dead because I doubted if Mitchell would reconsider the matter. I wrote back to, the, to my office with Liddy and Magruder, but there was no further discussion of the plan. The next time I became aware of any discussions of such plans occurred, I believe, on February 4, 1972. Magruder had scheduled another meeting in Mr. Mitchell's office on a revised intelligence plan. I arrived at the meeting very late, and when I came in, Liddy was presenting a scaled-down version of his earlier plan. I listened for a few minutes and decided I had to inject myself into the discussions. Mr. Mitchell, I felt, was being put on the spot. The only polite way I thought I could end the discussion was to inject that these discussions could not go on in the office of the Attorney General of the United States, and the meeting should terminate immediately. At this point, the meeting ended. I do not know, to this day, who kept pushing for these plans, whether Liddy was pushing, or whether Mr. was pushing, whether someone was pushing the order, I do not know. I do know, in hindsight, that I should not have been polite as I was in really suggesting that Liddy destroy the charge after the first meeting. Rather, I should have said, forget the plan completely. After I ended the second meeting, I told Liddy that I would never again discuss this matter with him. I told him that if any such plans were approved, I did not want to know. One thing was certain in my mind, while someone wanted this operation, I did not want any part of it, nor would I have any part of it. After this second meeting, meeting of March 21st. As I have indicated, my purpose in requesting this meeting, particularly with the President, was that I felt it necessary that I give him a full report of all the facts that I knew and explain to him what I believed to be the implications of those facts. It was my particular concern with the fact that the President did not seem to understand the implications of what was going on. For example, when I had earlier told him that I thought I was involved in an obstruction of justice situation, he had argued with me to the contrary after I'd explained it to him. Also, when the matter of money demands had come up, previously he had very nonchalantly told me that that was no problem. I did not know if he realized that he himself could be getting involved in an obstruction of justice by having, by having promised clemency to, to hunt. What I had hoped to do in this conversation was to have the President tell me we had to end the matter now. Accordingly, I gave considerable thought to how I would present this situation to the President and try to make as dramatic a presentation 
as I could to tell him how serious I thought the situation was that the cover-up continue. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. I also told him that it was important that this cancer be removed immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. I then gave him what I told him would be a broad overview of the situation, and I would come back and fill in details and answer any questions he might have about the matter. I proceeded to tell him how the matter had commenced in late January, early February, but that I did not know how the plans had been finally approved. I told him that I had informed Haldeman what was occurring, and Haldeman told me that I should have nothing to do with it. I told him that I had learned that there had been pressure from Colson on Magruder, but I did not have all the facts on, as to the degree of the pressure. I told him I did not know if Mitchell had approved the plans, but I <clears throat> had been told that Mitchell had been a recipient of wiretap information and that Haldeman had also received some information through Strawn. He then proceeded to, I then proceeded to tell him some of the highlights that had occurred during the cover-up. I told him that Kambach had been used to raise funds to pay these seven individuals for their silence at the instructions of Ehrlichman, Haldeman, and Mitchell, and I had been the conveyors, the conveyor of the, this instruction to Kambach. I told him that after this, the decision had been made that Magruder was to remain at the re-election committee, I had assisted Magruder in preparing his false story for presentation to the grand jury. I told him that cash that had been at the White House had been funneled back to the re-election committee for the purpose of paying the seven individuals to remain silent. I then proceeded to tell him that perjury had been committed and for this cover-up to continue would require more perjury and more money. I told him that the demands of the convicted individuals were continually increasing and that with sentencing imminent, the demands had become specific. I told him that, the, that on Monday, the 19th, I had received a message from one of the re-election committee lawyers who had spoken directly with Hunt, and that Hunt had sent a message to me demanding money. I then explained to him that the message that Hunt had, been, had told O'Brien the preceding Friday to be passed on to me. I told the president I'd ask O'Brien why to Dean, and O'Brien had asked Hunt the same question. But Hunt had merely said, you just passed this message on to Dean. The message was that Hunt wanted $72,000 for living expenses and $50,000 for attorney's fees. And if he did not get the money and get it quickly, that he would have a lot of seamy things to say about what he'd done for John Ehrlichman while he was at the White House. If he did not receive the money, he would have to reconsider his options. I informed the president that I had passed this message to both Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Ehrlichman asked me if I had discussed the matter with Mitchell. I had told Ehrlichman that I had not done so, and Ehrlichman asked me to do so. I told the president I had called Mitchell pursuant to Ehrlichman's request, but I had no idea of what was happening regarding the request. I then told the president that this was just typical of the type of blackmail that the White House would continue to be subjected to, and I did not know how to deal with it. I also told the president that I thought that I would I, I thought that I would, as a result of my name coming out during the Gray hearings, be called before the grand jury. And if I was called to testify before the grand jury or the Senate committee, I would have to tell the facts the way I knew them. I said I did not know if executive privilege would be applicable to any appearances I might have before the grand jury. I concluded by saying that this is going to take continued perjury and continued support of these individuals for, to perpetuate the cover-up 
and I did not believe it was possible to so continue it. Rather, I thought it was time for surgery of the cancer itself, and that all of those involved must stand up and account for themselves, and that the President himself get out in front of this matter. I told the President that I did not believe that all seven defendants would maintain their silence forever. In fact, I thought that one or more would very likely break rank. After I finished, I realized I had not really made the President understand because he asked me a few questions, and he discussed that it would be an excellent idea if I gave some sort of briefing to the Cabinet, and that he was very impressed with my knowledge of the circumstances, but not seemed particularly concerned with their implications. It was after my presentation... During the time I was having conferences with the government prosecutors, I was avoiding conversations with Mitchell, Ehrlichman, and Holloman as much as I could. However, on several occasions, I did talk with Ehrlichman while he was in California. At one point, he called me to ask me if I had completed my report that I had been working on at Camp David. I told him it was still incomplete. He said that I should send him whatever I had completed. I told him that a section dealing with Segretti's activities, which had been prepared by Dick Moore, but which I had not reviewed myself, was complete as far as I was concerned, and I would send it to him. He said I should send it to California immediately on the DEX machine. He said that Holloman was interested in getting these facts out now because the timing might be right. I sent the report that had been written by Moore, a copy of which I've submitted to the committee, exhibit number 40. I also had a conversation with Mitchell about Paul O'Brien going out to visit Holloman in California. Mitchell told me that he wanted O'Brien to go out and visit with Haldeman and that he had worked out the meeting. I felt like telling Mitchell that I thought that when I learned that the meeting had been switched from Haldeman to Ehrlichman, that O'Brien was being set up, that Ehrlichman would probe him on everything he knew about Mitchell, Dean, and anyone else involved. I did not know if, the, if this in fact occurred, but knowing that Ehrlichman and Haldeman were very busy protecting their flanks, I would have to believe that it did occur. I have never talked with O'Brien about what did occur during his meeting with Ehrlichman. Ehrlichman also asked me if I knew when I would be called before the grand jury. I told him I did not, but that my lawyers were discussing the matter with the prosecutors. I did not tell him that I had already met with the prosecutors, but he told me that he wanted to know when I was going to be called because he wanted to talk to me before I appeared. I believe that the President returned from California on Sunday, April 8th. I was scheduled to meet with the prosecutors that afternoon. My attorneys had been discussing my testimony with the prosecutors, and they had worked out an arrangement whereby I could give the prosecutors my knowledge directly, and what I told them would not later be used against me if they should prosecute me. I felt that I should tell Haldeman that I was going to meet with the prosecutors personally, so I called him in California on the morning of April 8th before they departed for Washington. I made the call from Mr. Schaffer's office, and when I told him this, he said that I should not meet with the prosecutors because, as he said, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's going to be very hard to get it back in. After this comment, I did not tell Holloman whether I would or would not meet with them, and in fact, the meeting went up forward. During the meeting, and while the president was flying east, I received a call from Air Force One from Mr. Higby, who asked me to be in Wisdom's, Ehrlichman's code name, office, at a certain time for a meeting. I believe the meeting was set for 4 or 5 o'clock. I departed from the meeting with the prosecutors to go into the White House. I went to Ehrlichman's office. There, I found Ehrlichman and Haldeman, who had just arrived from Andrews Air Force Base and were 
and we chatted for a brief moment about their trip. I raised the fact that I had read in the paper that morning that Colson had taken a lie detector test. I said that I hoped everyone is willing to take such lie, a lie detector test because it will probably be necessary now that Colson has taken a test. They asked me if I had met yet with the prosecutors or knew when I would be called before the grand jury. I avoided a direct answer to the question by saying that my lawyers were still having discussions with the prosecutors about my appearance before the grand jury. I was then asked some questions about testimonial areas, but I gave them evasive answers. Even these evasive answers, which related raised matters which related to them, brought forth responses that they did not remember it quite as I did. During the week of April 9th to April 4th... Mr. Uh, Dean, let me ask you a few questions about uh, your actions after the Watergate incident. And by asking questions about your own personal involvement, I, I hope I'm not... Uh, considered to be badgering you in any way, but I'm sure you realize as one lawyer to another that uh, your actions and motivations are very relevant. In fact, if I were still at the White House, I'd probably be feeding you the questions to ask the person who's sitting here. Well, Mr. Dean, uh, <laughs> and if I were here as I am, I would respond as I have responded that I don't need any questions to be fed to me from anybody. <clears throat> After the uh, break-in on the 19th, I believe, first of all, that you had a meeting with you had a mi meeting in Mr. Mitchell's apartment uh, with Mr. Mitchell, Mr. Mardian, Mr. Magruder uh, on the 19th after you'd returned to Washington. Is that correct? As I testified, to the best of my recollection, that was either on the 19th or the 20th. 20th. I arrived at the meeting. The meeting was already in session. Uh, I do not have any recollection of that meeting other than the fact that there was discussion while I was there of sort of the, the, the public relations handling of the matter. That was at the end, it was certainly at the end of, of a day that it occurred. It was either on the 19th or the 20th, and I don't have a clear recollection of which day that was. You didn't discuss the facts as to, uh, as to what had actually happened and who was responsible? Not at that time that I recall. Had no. you previously that day met with Mr. Liddy? Yes, I had. And he had told you that Magruder, I believe, had pushed him? I sat and listened at that meeting more than talking at that meeting, and I don't recall reporting that at that particular point in well, time. Well, I didn't ask you if you no. reported it. I just no. asked you had you not had that oh, yes, conversation I had. That yes, I had. And in your listening uh, between Mr. Mitchell and Mr. Magruder, of course, you realize that the three of you were the same, three of the same four individuals who sat in on two, two meetings which, which these matters were discussed, wiretapping this sort of thing. Uh, was that not sort of, a, sort of a strange feeling you must have had there on that occasion? Uh, didn't, didn't your mind go back to those previous meetings and you wonder whether or not, in fact, Mr. Liddy had been given the go-ahead go sign? That, that had already occurred to me when I met with Liddy. I'd realized right away what had happened. Uh, I had, before I met with Liddy, I had talk with Magruder. Magruder had told me that this was all Liddy's fault. It was very clear to me then that, that Liddy had proceeded either with or without authorization. It was after I talked to Liddy that I was very clear in my understanding that Liddy had been given an authorization to proceed. You never talked to Mr. Mitchell about it? No, sir. What had been your, what had been your professional relationship with Mr. Mitchell while you were at the Justice Department? I had a very, I would have to say it was sort of a, uh, 
a father-son relationship in many ways. Mr. Mitchell was very friendly to me. He was gave me some of the best assignments, I thought, in the Department of Justice. He uh, counseled me before I went to the White House that I shouldn't go to the White House. He said I ought to stay at the Department of Justice. Uh, I liked Mr. Mitchell very much. Were you concerned about his personal involvement after you heard about the, the break-in? I indeed was, but as I say, Mr. Mitchell, to this day, uh, there's been any, only one indication, and that was on a meeting on March 28th, that he's given me any indication that he had any involvement in this thing at all. And that was when I hypothesized to him what I thought had happened, and he said something to the effect, well, yes, it was something like that, but we thought it was going to be two or three times removed from the committee. When you turned over the documents from Hunt Safe to uh, Mr. Gray, I believe you stated that you did not tell him to destroy them, but that they were politically sensitive. That is correct. Is that correct? I think I described them as political dynamite. Did you ever tell him to destroy those documents? No, sir. On any subsequent occasion? Did you not, in fact, call Mr. Gray subsequently and ask him whether or not he had, in fact, destroyed those documents? No. Mr. Gray and I discussed the documents uh, at one of the meetings in his office uh, in, I think, early July or, or sometime of that nature, in which he told me that he had taken the documents to Connecticut and he had them there. And he either indicated to me that he was planning to read them or had read them. I am very unclear on that. At that time, he had mentioned nothing about destruction of the documents, and it was not until after I'd had my meeting in January, early January, with Mr. Peterson, and subsequently met with Mr. Gray, that he told me he had destroyed the documents. Did he say when he had destroyed them? No, he did not. Do you know when he destroyed them from no, any other source? Did you ever call him and ask him if he had read the documents? No, I did not. All right. Is there any, is there any other use that you made uh, or the White House made uh, of the FBI uh, on matters such as that that come to your, that, that come to your recollection now? I can recall again after the fact getting involved in a situation that involved a FBI investigation that was made of uh, Mr. Daniel Shore and uh, when I learned about that after the fact I was told that uh, what had happened is that uh, Mr. Higby had who was Mr. Haldeman's assistant had received a request from Mr. Haldeman when he was traveling with the president to direct the FBI to do an investigation of Mr. Shore. Uh, Mr. Hoover uh, proceeded with the investigation, but to the dismay of, of uh, the White House, uh, he did a sort of a full field, wide open investigation. And this became very apparent. So this put the White House in a, in a rather scrambling position to explain what had happened. Uh, the long and short of the explanation was that Mr. Malik, who at the time knew nothing about this, uh, said that uh, Mr. Shore was being considered for a post and that this was a part of a preliminary investigation uh, in consideration of Mr. Shore for a uh, presidential appointment and I believe in the environmental field. 
All right. Any other instances that you recollect as to the use of the FBI by the White House in, uh, along these lines? <clears throat> let, me, let, me be, let me give you a, a broad yes. range. You just might mark these down so that we don't have to go over each one. And this type of situation uh, that either involved the FBI or the Internal Revenue Service, CIA, military intelligence, Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Secret Service. Let me start from the bottom of the list back. Uh, I'm, I do recall, and I mentioned in my statement, a, a rather broad reference to the fact that uh, intelligence came from surprising sources sometimes. At one point, uh, one of the top officials at the, at the Secret Service brought me a small intelligence printout regarding Senator McGovern and just left it with me and said, I thought this might be of interest to you. Uh, it had to do with Mr. Senator McGovern attending a fundraising uh, function, I believe, in Philadelphia. And apparently there were, some, there were some references in the intelligence statement to the fact that uh, either communist money or communist, former communist supporters were going to attend the fundraiser. Uh, I took the document to Mr. Colson. I said, are you interested in this? I assume it was given to me not to, uh, to bury in my files. And, but I said, I don't think you can reveal the source of the information. He said, I'm very interested in it. He took it and later told me he had made arrangements to have it published. Now, with regard to ATF, Mr. Caulfield was at uh, ATF after he left the... Uh, the, uh, the White House and going by way of the re-election committee and from time to time he would send over tidbits of information regarding individuals. Uh, uh, some of this might be reflected in my file because I cannot recall ever doing anything with this information other than filing it. Um, the CIA, I don't recall myself receiving anything that we might call politically embarrassing information from the CIA about any individual. Uh, the memorandum I received from the CIA were, were straight uh, classified documents regarding activities of some anti-war demonstrators or people uh, uh, traveling to Hanoi and things of this nature. Also, uh, foreign funding of uh, domestic radical groups and things of this nature, which I would forward generally to uh, Dr. Kissinger or General Haig. With regard to the FBI, I've mentioned that IRS... Uh, I think that you will find in either uh, Exhibit 5 or possibly maybe 6 uh, reference to some use of the Internal Revenue Service and uh, re requesting information uh, or dealing with situations with regard to the Internal Revenue Service. I'm also aware of the fact that after an article was published on Mr. Rebozo, I got instructions that uh, one of the authors of that article uh, uh, should have some problems. I didn't know how to deal directly with the situation. I discussed it with Mr. Caulfield. I was reluctant to call Mr. Walters, who was the head of the uh, Internal Revenue Service, and suggest uh, that he do anything about this. Mr. Caulfield apparently had friends in the Internal Revenue Service 
and I believe he told me he was able to accomplish an audit on the individual. What the consequence of the audit was, I don't know. Who is the individual? I do not recall for certain. It was one of the, I think it was one of the Newsday persons who worked on a rather extensive article on Mr. Rebozo. All right. Are there any other instances that, of which you have first-hand knowledge in this in this? Area? As I say, if I were to to go, if I were to spend uh, a week or so in my files, I could probably uh, chapter and verse everything that had come to my office in this regard. But I, uh, I'm trying to come off the top and and tell you what I, I can recall off the top. I would hope, I would hope, uh, Mr. Dean, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, that uh, Mr. Dean would do just that to uh, refresh his recollection as to whether there is anything further that. Uh, he has been unable to come uh, forth with well, it this time. Well, the White House is, has made an arrangement whereby I can go to my files, but I must say it's a rather awkward arrangement. Uh, there are some five uh, file cabinets that are all safes, and there is no desk in the room to work, and I must work under the supervision of, an, of a Secret Service agent, and there's no place to sit down uh, with any comfort and write, so it's a little difficult to get in there and, and do anything. And hopefully, if I were to do that, we could make arrangements so I could get in and and uh, spend the time that would be necessary to go through the files. Now, Mr. The Chairman, other, the other thing is, is yes. of course, I have to do this all by handwriting because I'm not allowed to make any copies of anything in my files. I see. Then, just to briefly review, and this will end my questioning, and I, I apologize to the committee for taking so much time because it's a subject that I confess I don't have every last bit of information on, and it's a difficult one to piece together. But I think it's a very important part of the story to be told. And I think it's become clear here this afternoon that another step has been taken, another step further along the road from the testimony which Mr. McCord gave, whereupon he was receiving information from the Internal Security Division, to the next step where, at least insofar as the structure of the plan of 1970, which plan included bugging, burglarizing, mail covers, breaking and entering, and the like, insofar as the mechanics or the you know, the administration uh, was concerned that the first step uh, was taken uh, and also that uh, even though that particular unit uh, did not involve itself in any illegal activity certainly the security arms of the United States government uh, were uh, in various instances which you've recited uh, utilized uh, uh, for purposes uh, not intended. Uh, would that be a fair summation of what we're talking about here? Well, uh, I'm not quite sure of the end of your summation there. I wonder if you could repeat that you said security arms were used. That's for correct. Even though the IEC, even though the IEC itself did not engage in any uh, illegal activities, uh, uh, do you consider the matters which you've spoken of, whether it be an FBI investigation of an individual or an IRS audit, do you consider that to be uh, legal and proper activities by those security arms? As I say, I don't know of the IEC itself preparing political I material. Uh, I do, of course, know, and as I have submitted in documents, uh, other agencies were involved in seeking politically embarrassing information on individuals who were thought to be enemies of the White House. I might also add that uh, in my possession is a rather, uh, very much down the lines of what you're talking about, is a memorandum that was requested by me to prepare a means to attack the enemies of the White House. 
there was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. I'm not going to ask uh, who was on it. I'm, I'm afraid you might answer. Uh, I wonder, uh, does the, are these documents that are in the possession of the, uh, of the committee? Uh, no, but I'd be happy to submit them to the committee. They didn't uh, uh, fit within the uh, request that I had with counsel as to the documents he wished to have produced. But if the committee does wish them, I'll be happy to submit yeah, Mr. them. Mr. Chairman, I think the committee would like very much to have a copy of that memorandum. All right, sir. I have no further questions, Mr. Chairman. Now, let us go into Mr. Ziegler's uh, press statements. On June the 20th, 1972, he made this statement, which appeared in the Washington Post. He told reporters in Florida who were with the president that he would not comment on a third-rate burglary attempt. Now, would you agree with me that that was not a third-rate burglary attempt? I would agree it was not a third-rate burglary attempt, and I have no idea what the source of this story was. How would you characterize the Watergate burglary? That's a very, very, that's probably the most difficult question that's been asked yet. Uh, I would, uh, I guess I'd have to say that it was probably the opening act of one of America's great tragedies. Well, you answered it very well. Now, on October 17th, 1972, uh, Mr. Ziegler's statement appeared in the New York Times. He told reporters as follows. It goes without saying that this administration does not condone sabotage or espionage or the surveillance of individuals or source stories that make broad sweeping charges about the character of individuals. He also said, and I quote, I am not going to comment on stories based on hearsay or where innuendo or character assassination is involved. I am not going to dignify that with a comment. End of quote. Now, would you say that uh, the administration was engaged in uh, techniques such as were condemned in this statement by Mr. Ziegler at the time and uh, during the campaign of 1972? I would say that these things did occur. I would also say, as I believe I mentioned in either an earlier question uh, with Mr. Thompson, that the degree of Mr. Ziegler's briefing varied. Uh, at times, he was told enough that he could handle the story. I also believe I testified that I thought it would take me probably another 200 pages of testimony to explain all those briefings. I have not had an opportunity to go back through all of Ziegler's briefings to determine, for example, I, I could spot very easily which briefing I helped him on and which I didn't. Uh, but I haven't done that, Senator. Well, then, uh, do I understand you to say that uh, 
There are briefing papers for every press conference by Mr. Ziegler and for every press conference by the President available at the White House. Yes, sir. Every time Mr. Ziegler gives a briefing, it is recorded uh, in, uh, by, a, by a court reporter type situation, and that is kept in record form, and those are distributed to various members of the White House staff, but again, uh, I have not had access to, to get back to these. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I would like to ask uh, you and counsel to subpoena these briefings, the briefing papers, so that uh, they'll be become available to this committee. Yes, uh, Senator Montoya, we are in the process of getting them. And did you also state that uh, the... Thank you. Senator Baker. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Mr. First, Dean. First, I want to thank you for swapping places with me so I can fulfill the engagement later. Thank you. Mr. Very Chairman, much. there's no way on earth I could swap places with but I thank you for that, and I'm happy to relinquish my place in the sequence of questioning so that you could complete your very, very thorough and very, very important line of questioning this morning. I was about to say, Mr. Dean, that you've been a very patient witness. You've been very thorough. You've presented us with a great mass of information, almost 250 pages in your written statement voluminous testimony in response to the interrogation of members of this committee, and we're very grateful. Some of the specific allegations that you make in your testimony are at least prima facie extraordinarily important. The net sum of your testimony is fairly mind-boggling. It isn't my purpose in these uh, questions that are about to follow to do what would ordinarily be the expected function of a committee member and to try to test your testimony. I think that you've uh, subjected to a rather rigid examination by my colleagues on the committee thus far. And, of course, your testimony and its credibility, its importance and relevance will fall into place not only in terms of its own independent significance, but in terms of its relationship to the testimony of other witnesses. Now, you're a lawyer, Mr. Dean, and I needn't go into a long preamble about what I'm about to do. But so that you understand what I'm trying to do, I'll give you some brief explanation in advance. As I said just a moment ago, it is not my purpose now to try to test your testimony. It is not my purpose to try to impeach your testimony, to corroborate your testimony, to elaborate or extend particular aspects of it, but rather to try to structure your testimony so that we have a coherent presentation against which we can measure the testimony of other witnesses heretofore given and the testimony of other witnesses later to appear and, of course, against whatever other information the committee can gather from circumstantial evidence, from whatever source. It occurs to me that at this point, the central question, and in no way in derogation of the importance of the great 
volume of material and the implications that flow from it. But the, the central question at this point is simply put, what did the President know and when did he know it? In trying to structure your testimony, I would ask that you give attention to three categories of information. That information that you can impart to the committee that you know of your own personal knowledge. That type of information that we lawyers refer to as circumstantial evidence, which would include evidence given based on your opinion, or on inferences you draw from circumstances and the situation. And third, that type of evidence that ordinarily would not be admitted in a court of law, but is admitted here for whatever purpose it may serve, that is hearsay evidence, or evidence about which you have only secondhand information. I would hope that in that third category, that is in terms of hearsay evidence or secondhand information, that we would try, you and I, to limit the scope of that to situations which may be further ventilated by the testimony of other witnesses on the roster of witnesses to appear before this committee. Because if we range too far, there is no way that we can compare and assess and evaluate the importance of that testimony. But I want it, and I'd like to divide the information then as we go along into three parts, that is direct evidence, circumstantial evidence, and hearsay or secondhand information. I am in no way criticizing your testimony. I think you've really been a very remarkable witness. But I would remarkable witness. But I would chairman, I might say this. In preparing my testimony, I made a very conscious effort to not write a brief against any man, but merely to state facts sequentially as close as I could. By sequentially, I mean some things it was necessary to follow forward to explain a given sequence of events that bring them out of a time sequence. But I did not, by design, try to write a brief or a document that focused in on any individual or any set of circumstances surrounding any individual, rather lay them out in the totality of their context. I understand that, Mr. Dean, and I really do hope you understand that what I'm saying to you is not a criticism of you, nor any implication of criticism. Rather, instead, you have presented us with a sequential presentation, and I'm trying to convert it into an organized presentation according to categories and to the quality and scope of the information that you possess. So please believe me, I'm not trying to attack your testimony, but rather to organize it for our own committee purposes. Now, there's one other thing I'd like to say, and it may or may not be possible to do this. And again, I'm not being critical of you as a witness. As I said just a moment ago, I think you've been a very remarkable witness. But when I used to practice law, I used to call on the trial judge from time to time to instruct the witness to first answer the question and then to explain it. So I hope I can keep my questions brief, and I hope you might preface your answers with a yes or no, if that's possible, and then whatever explanation you wish. That is not meant to be an entrapment. It is not a do you still beat your wife question, answer yes or no. But it is meant to try to advance the cause of fact-finding. 
Under the head under the heading of what did the president know and when did he know it fall several subdivisions. The first one is the break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate complex on the morning of June 17, 1972. Do you know what the president knew of that in advance? Uh, I do not. Do you have any information that he did know of it? I only know that I learned uh, upon my return to the office that uh, events had occurred uh, that indicated that calls had come from uh, Key Biscayne to Washington to Mr. Strawn to destroy incriminating documents in the possession of Mr. Haldeman. The question is, I hope, not impossibly narrow, but your testimony touches many people. It touches Mr. Ehrlichman, Mr. Haldeman, Mr. Colson, Mr. Mitchell, Mr. Dean, and many others. But I'm trying to focus on the president. What did the president know? President. What did the president know, and when did he know it? Is it possible for you to say that based on direct knowledge or circumstantial information, and you've given us an indication of circumstances, or even hearsay, can you tell us whether or not you can shed any further light on whether the president knew or in the parlance of tort law should have known of the break-in of the Watergate complex on June 17th? You mean, did he have prior knowledge of it? Yes. I uh, cannot testify of any first-hand knowledge of that. I can only testify as to the fact that anything that came to Mr. Holloman's attention of any importance was generally passed to the president by Mr. Holloman. And if Mr. Holloman had advanced knowledge uh, or had received advanced indications, uh, it would be my assumption that that had been passed along. But I do not know that for a fact. So that would fall in category two of my organization. That is, that is an inference that you do draw from the arrangements of the organization of the White House and your knowledge of the relationships between the relationship between Mr. Uh, Mr. Haldeman and the president. That is correct. But it does not fall into category one or three, which is to say direct knowledge or hearsay information from another party. That is correct. The cover-up. 